You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, it's Leslie Ann. I'm so glad to have you here on the podcast this week. This is our very last lesson on 1 Peter. We've spent the past nine weeks looking at this book of the Bible, this short little, little letter, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and looking at what it is that God has to say to us through it. On Sunday, we talked about chapter 5 and the ways that Peter has encouraged us to stand firm in our faith, no matter what comes our way. I have been so encouraged through the study of 1 Peter, and I hope that you have too. This will be our last session for quite a while. We'll reconvene in the spring with a study on the Psalms. I'm not sure if that will be on the podcast or not. Still trying to figure out if um, that's something that we will continue to do. But either way, regardless, I'm so glad that you have joined us here, that you have followed along on this journey. And I pray and hope that you have grown in your faith through these lessons. Um, To find out more about this Bible study, visit LeslieAnnJones.com or just send me a message at hello at LeslieAnnJones.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, grace and peace. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father, I thank you so much for your word that you have given to us, God, for this encouragement and hope that you have uh, passed on to us through Peter, God, all these years later. Father, I pray that you would take your word and plant it in our hearts where it would grow and bear fruit, Lord, that we may um, be changed by it and become the people that you have called us to be, people who stand firm in our faith, who know you and who trust you, who place our hope in you despite circumstances that are sometimes less than ideal. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word, that we would see you more clearly and understand your will. And it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen. 
I love this chapter in First Peter. It's probably one of those where we, we know some of these verses, right? How many have you memorized? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's so encouraging, right? These verses, these final words. And I think that Peter, after everything that he has said, he's saying, finally, stand firm. And that is the whole point, I think, of this whole letter is that stand firm in the grace of God in the truth and in the hope that he has given us. Don't waver, stand firm. And those words that he gave to them then still apply to us now. And he starts with this discussion where he's talking to the elders, to the leaders of the various churches in this region that he was writing to. So if you remember how we closed out last week, um, the very last few verses that we talked about were about judgment beginning at the household of God. And if judgment begins at the household of God, then what's to happen to those who are unsaved, right? How will it be for them? And with this in mind, with judgment starting at the household of God, then he turns naturally to address the leaders of the church. So since judgment is beginning at the household of God, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And I think it's interesting how Peter identifies himself here because he is majorly downplaying his own role in the church. He identifies himself with them. He says, hey, I'm one of you. I'm a fellow elder. I'm a fellow partaker in the future inheritance that has been promised to us. And I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Everybody knew who Peter was. He wasn't just another church leader. He was a chief apostle. He was one of the disciples. He was a father of the church. So for him to say, hey, I am in this with you. I am just like you. He's lowering himself and demonstrating the humility that is required of a good leader. He's not lording his authority over them. I mean, he could have said, hey, I'm the chief apostle, so you need to do this. But that's not what he does. He says, I'm in this with you. And I think it's also interesting that he calls himself, he calls to mind, reminds them that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So um, what do you think they would have thought of when they thought of the way that Peter witnessed the sufferings of Christ? What was Peter doing while Christ was suffering? He was denying Christ. His courage failed. And he fell flat on his face. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I don't exactly bring up my failures to people. I don't like to revisit those and say, hey, look at this time that I really majorly messed up. I would rather skim over that and pretend that that didn't happen. But I think it is so encouraging what Peter is doing for them here because he's saying, I'm one of you. I have messed up majorly. And yet I am a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And he can say that because what happened after Peter's denial? Jesus dies on the cross, he's resurrected, and then what, what, what do Peter and the disciples do in this like intervening time? They go back to fishing, and they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee, just like where Jesus found Peter the first time. And what happens? Y'all know this. They don't catch any fish, but they look up and what happens? It's like they've been out there all night long and there's this guy on the shore. And what does he say? Try the other side. 
And Peter knows. What does Peter do? This is John 21. What does Peter do? He jumps out of the boat. He swims because he knows it's Jesus. And I love that story in John chapter 21 because in that conversation that he and Jesus have before the rest of the disciples make it to shore, what does Jesus do for Peter? He restores him. And for those three denials that Peter gives, Jesus asks him to three times to do one thing. What does he tell Peter to do? Feed my sheep. So Peter has been restored to fellowship with Christ, and he is passing on this charge that Jesus himself gave him to the shepherds of the church in Asia Minor. What he is telling them is to carry on in this work that I have been doing. This is what Jesus asked me to do. This is what he has called us all to do. Feed and care for the sheep. So shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, I'm never going to be a church elder. I'm not ever going to be a pastor. So sometimes when I read passages like this, it's easy for me to kind of skim over them because I think, well, that doesn't really apply to me very much. But as church members, we all will participate in the selection of church leaders, whether that is our deacon body or our ministerial staff at some point. And so I think it is important to read these and to see what um, a good shepherd looks like and that when we are choosing those leaders for our church and praying over and seeking godly direction, that we find men who do this, who willingly are serving, not for shameful gain, they're not domineering or lording over their authority over other people, but that they are first and foremost serving the Lord and shepherding the flock because they know that who, who does the flock belong to? God. It's the flock of God and ultimately they're serving the Lord. And so as we are looking for our church leaders, let's find leaders who act like this. This is what a good leader looks like. They care for the flock of God. They tend them when they're sick they lead them to safety. They dig them out of those bramble pits or whatever they've fallen themselves, found themselves in. Um, a shepherd's job is not a glamorous job, but it is good work to do. And so we need to find men who fit that picture of humble servanthood. And then as for us, who are then the sheep, Peter also has instructions for the sheep. And I think um, I, I heard teaching on this passage back last January when I went to that same workshop, which was on First Peter. And what um, they said about this passage is like, you know how if you are going on a trip and you're either leaving your children with grandparents or somebody else to care for, or if you're just going out on a date, or, you know, if you think back to all those kinds of things, like you had a list of instructions for the caretaker, right? If the child was sick, then you had to tell them what kind of medicine to take and when to take it, and you suction out the nose and make sure that, you know, they have their milk before, I don't know, bed or whatever. You had lots of instructions about how to take care of the child, but then what did you tell the child? Be good. <laughs> I love you. 
because it was the caretaker's job to, you know, make sure that the child was doing what they needed to do. And so Peter's instructions then to the sheep, to us, are fairly short here. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. He's been talking this whole time in this whole book about humility and submission and lowering of yourself. And he's not stopping yet. He's still talking it about it. So be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself and submit. So um, don't make the shepherd's job harder by refusing to stand down. Um, Don't make things more difficult than they have to be. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't have opinions about the way things should go or perhaps some improvements or how things might be better if we did this instead. But it does mean that the way that you offer up those ideas or suggestions um, should be done in a respectful and gentle and loving manner out of a pure heart, not for my way is better than your way, um, but with humility knowing that then it's much more likely to be received and that is a much better way to serve our shepherds than um, talking about them behind the back their backs for not doing things the way that we think they should do them and so um, he's saying you you've got to lower yourself and let the shepherds do their job you're not the shepherd you're a sheep so be a sheep be a good sheep and um, don't make their job harder than it should be And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So, clothe yourselves. That means you have to put on humility like a garment. It is not natural. It's not an easy thing. Dietrich sent me a message, a message, an article. I printed it out because I knew I wouldn't remember. An article this week about um, what humility looks like. Do you remember all the things? I don't either. That's why I printed it out. Clearly, I need to work on it. But um, it's seven ways to put on humility. So here's a few suggestions. Listen. Listen to others. Be teachable. Don't blame other people for your sins. Like, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't. None of us do that ever. Um, Don't be so sure you're right all the time. (laughs) That's probably one of my... My big problems. Um, take an interest in others. Notice people. Ask for forgiveness. Don't just say, I'm sorry. Ask people to forgive you. And practice the spiritual discipline of asking for prayer in your own areas of weakness. Because I think pride so often stops us. Pride is what keeps us from admitting our own weakness, right? We don't want people to know that we don't have it all together. And so those are just some suggestions for ways to practice humility. It doesn't come naturally to any of us, but it's a conscious, willing choice to do this thing that's hard. Why? Why? Why do we do it? Why do we practice humility? Yes, he does. It says here that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. So who wants to be in opposition to God? Like, I don't want to be opposite him. On any battleground, do you? No. Um, So there's that. But also because it's the way of Christ. That's what Jesus did for us. In Philippians 2, um, this is what it says. Philippians 2, chapter, verse 3 and following. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For the believer, the way up is down. We have to lower ourselves in the same way that Jesus did in order to then be exalted, not by ourselves, but by God. That's how it works. Um, And I love this passage because it says that Jesus put on the form of a servant. He put it on in the same way that we're called to put on humility. Um, So it's a conscious, willful decision. It does not come naturally to any of us, but it is that mindset of counting others as more significant than ourselves. And if we can do that, if if we can do that in the church, then um, then we will be modeling the ways of Christ to the world. The problem is, is that it's hard. It's not easy. But Peter is calling us to this kind of humble service. Just like he calls our shepherds to one form of humble service, he calls us to another. Um, because, as he says, God opposes the proud but give grace, gives grace to the humble. So why do you think God opposes the proud? What are, what are the proud like? What do prideful people do? They're arrogant. None of us are ever prideful, so we're not talking about ourselves at all here. Are proud people ever wrong? They don't need any help. I got this, right? So I wrote down three things. The proud seek glory for themselves. They are all about making their own name great and getting the attention and the honor that they deserve because they are awesome and they want everybody to know it. But the humble fly under the radar. They don't really care whether they get recognition or not. What they're more concerned about is bringing glory to God. The proud consider themselves more important than others. So my wants, my desires, my needs, my ideas, my ways of doing things are better than your ways of doing things. Fill in the blanks. Keep going. But the humble considers consider others more important than themselves. Your wants, your desires, your needs, your ways of doing things as more important. The proud place all their trust in themselves. Like you said, Lauren, they don't need a savior. But the humble put their trust in God. And so that's why Peter then comes down here in verse 6. And he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I'm going to start with the end part and then move back to the beginning. So he says to cast all your anxieties on him. What does that have to do with humility? Yes, there is, there is an admission there that you cannot handle it. But also, too, 
how is it when you are wrapped up in your own concerns and cares? When you are worried about something that's going on or you're just completely undone by your own anxiety? Are you paying attention to the needs of others around you? No. So there is a sense in which when we are so concerned about ourselves and our own welfare and how things are going to go for us that we cannot practice humility in the way that Christ practiced humility, which is humble servanthood, because we are so concerned about our own well-being and how things are going to turn out and what's going to happen if this does, you know, we can't. We can't serve others in the way that God has called us to if we're so wrapped up in our own concerns. So Peter says to take those things and to give them to God, that that is the way to humility is letting go of those cares and those concerns for yourself and placing them in the hands of the one who is big enough and strong enough, whose hands are mighty, to handle them. And we can do that because why? What's the end part of that verse? Why are we able to do this? Because he cares for you. We can trust him. We can lower ourselves and take those things to him and to get underneath his sovereign hand because we know that he cares for us. It's not as if you're just throwing your cares and concerns into the void and then, oh, well, whatever happens, happens. I've let go of it. No, we're, we're giving them to the Lord. And that's the safest place for those cares and concerns to be are in his hands. And when we have let go of those things, when we give our own concerns to the Lord, then that frees us up to serve others in the way that God has called us to. It's key to humility is that letting go of all the stuff that we carry around. We've got our own baggage. We've all got our stuff, our worries, the things that keep you up at night or wake you up in the middle of the night. We've all got it. And so those are the sorts of things that we can get so focused on. And they're not bad things usually. You know, it's family or it's sickness or work or whatever it may be. It's not necessarily bad things, but we get so caught up in them that we can't see past them. But Peter says that God has called us to something bigger than that and that we have to let go of those things so that we can become who God wants us to be. And you have to know deep down in your bones that you can trust God with those things, that he is trustworthy because he cares for us. Because if you don't, if you can't trust him with those things, then you're not going to be able to stand firm when the devil comes prowling around like a roaring lion. You're not going to be able to resist him. You have to be able to trust the Lord to then survive. Basically, he says, be sober minded, be watchful. He said that more than once. Pay attention. Be alert. It's a battlefield out there. Be aware of your surroundings and what's happening. Because what always happens when the silly little wildebeest is drinking from the pond and like the, I mean, just completely oblivious. They are not alert. What happens? Crocodile, the lion, I mean, something, whatever it is, that's when they're attacked. When they are not paying attention to what is happening around them. And so Peter says, pay attention, be alert, be sober-minded. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is a predator and he preys on the weak. He's looking for the easy kill. 
And so if you want to resist the devil, if you want to stand firm, then you have to be strong in your faith. If you're so frightened by the roaring of the lion that you turn and flee, um, then the lion's going to catch up to you. But what does James 4, 7 say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you because the devil is loud and he's scary and he has some power, but his power is what? Limited, limited. He is not nearly as powerful as the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You are not weak, helpless prey. We have the Holy Spirit living within us who empowers and strengthens and enables us to resist to stand firm and when we do that the devil flees from us and it's God who gives us the victory but we have to stand firm and he calls um, attention to this fact of truth for them he says resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world you are not alone in your struggle whatever it is You have brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing the same sorts of difficulty. It's not just you. You're not being singled out. Stand firm and resist. Because what? After a little while, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Satan may prowl around like a roaring lion, but he is not in control. We serve the lion of Judah. Roaring with power, that's our God. Our God is the true lion. Our God is in control. So the devil will stalk us and treat us as if we're prey. Um, And we can be devoured and destroyed by despair when suffering comes, hopelessness, um, feelings of aloneness, and give in to that prey mentality. Or we can stand up and be the child of God that we are. Um, Satan is vicious and ruthless, but our God is bigger. Our God is bigger than that, and he is stronger. So we have to stand firm. We have to be the people that God has called us to be if we're ever going to make it through. Because he says here, it's just for a little while. Satan may think he's got this battle won, but he doesn't. He doesn't. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now this is an already but not yet kind of promise. Have y'all heard that phrase before? The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully realized. We live in an already but not yet world. Jesus Christ has already won the victory, but it is not yet fully in effect. Um, I've heard it described this way, and those of you who are in our Sunday school class have heard me give this illustration before. But, you know, when the troops stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, that was the beginning of the end, right? World War II was basically over from that point onward. But it was a long time between D-Day and VE Day, which is Victory Over Europe Day. It was a long time till it was official that the war was over. Now, there were a few skirmishes here and there while 
you know, the powers that be worked out all the details of the treaties, and I don't know everything that was signed because I'm, I didn't brush up on my history for this. So there were still battles going on, but the war was over. And that's where we are. We're in the already but not yet. The war is over, but we're still like cleanup crew, you know. There's still battles going on around us in the meantime. It's an already but not yet world. And so God is already restoring us. He is already confirming us. He's already strengthening and establishing us. And we know this is true. We have all felt these truths in our life. I'm not the same person that I was, thank the good Lord, when I first came to know him. And neither are you. You have grown in your faith. The Lord has strengthened you. He has established your faith, sometimes in really hard ways. And yet, we know that we are not going to be fully strengthened and established and confirmed and glorified until the end. So it's part of that sanctification process that we talked about way back in the beginning. It's already started, but it's not done yet. But it will be soon. And this is the grace that Peter calls them to stand firm in. This is the truth and the knowledge. This, these verses here, verses 10 and 11, that after a little while, after the suffering and the hardship and the pain and the tears and the trials, there is an after. It's not forever. It's temporary. That God who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So when he gets to verse um, 12, and he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That is the truth that you're supposed to stand in, that you are an elect exile, a sojourner traveling through this world, and that while we are here, in this world that is not our home. We're going to have troubles of many kinds. But like I said all those weeks ago, if it's not good, it's not the end. And Peter's saying the ending is so good, so good. If you can just hold on, keep holding on, then you will make it through to the end. I, <laughs> I want to close with this silly little illustration from my own life. Um, but this happens once a month since May. And so, um, I know that it's true that looking forward to something better can get you through some tough times. So here's my silly little, little illustration. Micah has been plagued with warts for a while now. Um, for a few years, we've had issues with warts and it started as molluscum and then they turned into warts. Anyway. We go to the dermatologist every month. We have been going since May, so she can have them lasered. So we have st we started with like seven, and also because she's a swimmer, and that apparently makes it like so much worse. It's apparently a thing for swimmers because they all get in the water, and then they're on the kickboards, and they're like spreading fantastic <laughs> stuff for you to know. Too much information. So she does not enjoy that process at all, the laser process. It is painful, and um, she has been through it enough times to catch. She knows what is coming, and that she has one in the palm of her hand. It's, we only have one left now. 
praise the Lord. Um, but it's this one in the palm of her hand. And do you know how many like nerve endings you have in your hand? So many, so many. But every time um, she's just thinking about how bad it is, like that's going to hurt. That's going to shoot. She won't open up her hand to like Carrie, who we are on a first name basis with now. Um, <laughs> the technician get the laser in there. And so every time I can crouch down in front of her and say, hey, Micah, and I don't know how this still works or if she's just willfully letting me distract her now. Micah, Micah, what kind of ice cream are you going to get when we go to Bob's? <laughs> and so right about the time that she opens up her hand and says, I'm going to get dirt and worms, <laughs> which is disgusting, but she really loves, um, then it's over. And just that simple momentary distraction of something better that is coming when we leave this place is enough to get her through. And I know that that's a silly little illustration from real life, but it's the same thing. We've got to look forward to the better future sometimes in order to get us through. I am grateful that Peter wrote this letter. Just so very thankful that he continued to shepherd the flock of God even after his big failure because he's still shepherding us today, 2,000 years later, with these words of encouragement that he gave to them. And um, it has been so good for my heart. I hope it has been good for yours um, to remember these things and and to point my eyes toward that future hope because I need it. I need that reminder. Father, I thank you so much for your word and for your faithfulness and goodness to us, God, um, for this beautiful hope for a better future that you have given all of us, for the assurance that you have given us that though life is hard and suffering does come, that if it's not good, it's not the end, and that you have an ending in view that is better than our wildest imaginings. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember that truth and to stand firm in our faith and look to you, the author and perfecter of that faith, when that suffering comes for our strengthening, for our confirming, and for our hope, Father. God, I pray that you would continue to draw our hearts together and knit us into a people who love you and love one another and serve you and serve one another well. And it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen.